the state of Tennessee is one of the few places where the sounds are just as breathtaking as the sights. Whether that's live music at an historic music venue, the crack of an open fire at a campsite in the wilderness, or hearing kids laugh as they explore what's right around the bend, Tennessee just sounds perfect. Start planning your trip at tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Ridiculous History is a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome back to the show, Ridiculous Historians. Thank you, as always, so much for tuning in. Rosebud. Let's give it up for our own audio auteur, Super Rosebud. Producer Max Williams. Oh. Rosebud. Rosebud. <laughs> Sorry, that's all I got. That's the only words. Now, there's others. There's, there's others. plenty. Yeah, there's a great Frozen Peas commercial. But Frozen Peas is good. He also, wait, maybe it was Animaniacs parodying the Frozen Peas commercial where it was, no, no, it was Family real. He did, did a fish, he did a fish sticks commercial ah. where he says crumb crisp coating. And he says it like it's like an outtake where it's Orson Welles like losing it. You know, talking about how I've done Shakespeare, Richard, that I, I, I will not say crumb crisp coating. He also is the perfect example of one of these like thespian auteur types that is like definitely American, but has just really drunk their own Kool-Aid enough that they become this sort of like faux British thing. You know, it's it's fantastic. Do you remember that? Do you remember that uh, show, The Critic? Criminally oh, underrated. Yeah. They've Wonderful. got a great Orson Welles bit. Uh, that talks to his commercials. Uh, and today we are going to explore Orson's work, but maybe not in the way you think. This is part two of our continuing series on lost media. Shout out to our research associate, Dr. Z. I actually just want to jump in real quick. And I want to say, I want to meet the guy who does Orson Welles. So there's one guy who does basically every impersonation of Orson Welles in like a movie or a show or something like that. He's, he plays Orson Welles in Ed Wood, uh, the Tim Burton movie. He's also the voice of the brain in Pinky and the Brain. 
and like he's in a bunch of things like i like in whenever whenever you hear his voice i clock him like like he's mm-hmm. in an episode of like rick and morty and so i'm like oh that's him the <laughs> voice of the brain basically is orson wells exactly you know 100%. orson wells uh, he looms large it makes sense you know he really you know he we came from a back background of broadcast you know with the was it like the mercury theater or i forget exactly we had like a radio theater player's company uh, that he was in charge of. Uh, I think Mercury is right. But he, you know, obviously did War of the Worlds, which was a huge sensation, sure. not necessarily in a good way. It freaked people out. <laughs> people were like literally kind of, there was a hysteria surrounding it, you know, with uh, presenting it as though it were a legitimate broadcast of, you know, invaders from outer space. Ben, what, what do you think about that? Is that like opportunistic and kind of jacked up or is it genius? So this is, th- I'm really glad you're bringing this up because uh, <laughs> there is a lot of speculation about the veracity of that story. It, did people genuinely believe that Martians were invading Earth when they heard this guy on the radio? Apparently not. Apparently that radio program, which was in 1938, did not touch off nationwide hysteria. But let's not let the facts get in the way of a heck of a story. I was taken in. Also, I I don't know about you guys. I'm super biased. I dig Orson Welles so hard, mainly for the commercials, but also very talented filmmaker. And uh, today's story is not about Citizen Kane. It's not about War of the Worlds. It is about something called the Magnificent Ambersons, which, Mm -hmm. Noel, I I think it's safe to say a lot of our fellow listeners in the crowd today probably have never heard of this film. Well, I may have clued you in that this is part two of our Lost Media series. And, uh, you know, Max and I were talking right before you popped back in, Ben, about you know, a lot of hay being made around certain movies having, you know, con- or certain pieces of media having controversies around them. For example, uh, the James Franco, Seth Rogen movie, I believe it's called The Interview, uh, that supposedly made Korea, their North Korea, really, really angry oh, because right. they depicted, you know, Kim Jong-il uh, or, or in it uh, unfavorably. They actually, like, I think, blow him up and it shows his, like, head exploding like the Nazis in Indiana Jones. But it turns out that it just kind of wasn't a very good movie. And in this story today, we're talking about what Orson Welles was hoping would be a uh, masterpiece, follow-up to his legitimate masterpiece, Citizen Kane, which, by the way, if you haven't seen Citizen Kane, and and to your point, actually, you made on our last episode about – Snake Oil. We talked about the book The Jungle, how certain books and films from, you know, bygone era kind of get a reputation as being slow or sort of like old fashioned. Citizen Kane, in so many ways, does not feel like a movie of its era. It feels completely modern in a lot of ways. Like, and the, the like how they got these shots, you know, there's so many innovations that he made with cinematography. Mm. Really worth your time. So, tall order to follow this up. Oh, yeah. Yeah, perfect setup for a a slump, you know what I mean? Uh, Citizen Kane is a hard act to follow, and with the magnificent Ambersons, Orson feels that he has something to prove to the world. I'm not just some one-trick pony. Uh, so he tries to make this other film, and the studio, RKO, says, look, we're not going to gr- let this fly. The general audience that we show movies to will find this, the word they used was 
unpalatable. Uh, right. The test screenings, which were a thing back then as well, uh, the test screenings did not meet with good reactions. And so the studio went into reshoots. They shot several pivotal scenes again without Orson Welles there. And then they got another guy, Robert Wise, to oversee a complete re-edit. They went under the hood of the film. They changed a lot of stuff. And they released uh, what we could call the Magnificent Amberson's Light <laughs> in July totally. of 1942. Yeah, and by the way, there's some great names in, in the story, as there always are when we're talking about uh, old Hollywood, the golden age of cinema. Uh, this was based on a Pulitzer Prize-winning novel that came out in 1918 of the same name, The Magnificent Ambersons, by Booth Tarkington. Yeah, I just wish it had a, the third in there, you know, but we can just insert that in our own imaginations. And I just want to, I was sort of starting a point earlier that I sort of like let fizzle, but the whole thing about the movie, the uh, the interview. Yes. That they made this whole big to do about, oh my God, it's like, oh, it's going to cause World War Three, you know, which Kim Jong un is so angry at us for making this movie. They got movie. pulled out of theaters. They got pulled out mm -hmm. of theaters, but ultimately it just wasn't a very funny picture. It just didn't really have the goods. And I, what we're going to see, I think, in this discussion here is that the magnificent Ambersons. Um, in, in even in uh, Orson Welles, you know, director's cut, masterful version, maybe just wasn't nearly as good a movie as, as Citizen Kane. And I think the story of like, oh, it's lost forever is somehow more intriguing than the actual film might be. I think that's a I think that's a good perspective. And I think that's quite valid. You know, also putting magnificent in the title of anything is promising a lot it's making it a tall milkshake mm -hmm. at, at the at this time in 1942 or so uh wells is a big big deal everybody's yeah. talking about him in hollywood so he he knows there's a lot writing on his next film and he finds the story by booth tarkington thanks to a 1925 film called Pampered Youth. He's so impressed. He's over the moon. He's inspired. He's just like knocking back frozen peas and fish sticks and saying, I'm going to adapt this story. I'm going to make it a radio drama on CBS. The RKO studio chief at the time, a guy named George Schaefer, said, you know, well, if you're looking for your next project, why don't you adopt this spy novel I like, Journey into Fear by Eric Ambler? But Wells said, nah, not special enough. They went out, they actually went through a couple of different conversations about what yeah. his next project should be. Well, I mean, you know, he's sort of in this blank check kind of situation mm -hmm. where, like, Citizen Kane was such a runaway success. It won, you know, Best Picture and all this stuff. Like, it was it was huge. Um, it was odd. It, it is a difficult—it's not—it was, it was a very, like, ahead-of-its-time film. So I think it was more of—maybe more of a critical success than it was a financial success. Mm -hmm. So he was definitely in this, like, auteur position. But that's not the same as, like, having, like, a mega, 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 mega runaway blockbuster smash— where you can literally do whatever you want for your next picture because they want to retain you. Um, he's already kind of got this reputation for being a little bit tricky to work with, right, a little right, bit right. willful, maybe not the best partner for a studio, and he is not hearing this. They're pitching him movies that they think would be 
you know, hits, like The Way to Santiago, right? The one you mentioned, Journey into Fear. Um, But he wants to do more of a kind of a dramatic tale of manners and kind of, you know, like, like a, like, what do you call it? Like a, a familial drama kind of, you know, that sort of points to, you know, flaws and cracks in the American dream and all of this stuff, you know, heady ish stuff. Like, but for the time, not super sexy, not soup, not the stuff of blockbusters at all. Right. And he's also, we already see he's having some difficulties negotiating stuff with the studios, with the holders of the purse. But he does this radio adaptation, runs about an hour long. He loves it. And he wants to do a video or film version of this. So he gets his cast together and I think he has one actor from the radio version, Ray Collins, return for the film version, and he starts gathering his crew, just like he's planning a heist. He can't get his cinematographer from Citizen Kane, a guy named Greg Toland, so he hires a dude named Stanley Cortez, and he gets his old uh, composer from Citizen Kane, Bernard Herman, to help out. And uh, <laughs> funny story, a slight spoiler. When the studio-approved version of The Magnificent Ambersons comes out, our buddy Bernard Herman is pissed. He mm-hmm. contacts them and insists that the studio take his name off of the credits. He says, you have butchered my work. Remove me from this debacle. I think it's so interesting. I guess I, I think of Bernard Herrmann as being more associated with, like, uh, Alfred Hitchcock and, um, you know, a lot of that, like, you know, Psycho, for example. That's, like, absolutely uh, quintessential, the vibe that you think of when you think of Bernard Herrmann's work. But I guess he must have just been, like, super already active, like, in Hollywood, like, before, you know, for, for, for a, several decades before uh, the Hitchcock stuff that really hit. Um, so super seasoned guy already at this point who could command that kind of, uh, you know, ask like listen nah just take my name off of it I wonder what they did I just I'm so intrigued like how do you like I guess maybe it was with editing or maybe they supplemented it with other stuff or something to do with the audio mix I just I, I've got to wonder you know with with the music how they uh they they pissed him off to that degree so I was looking up Bernard Herman just to get his like see when his career started but I found this he was born Maximilian Herman Come on, nice. man. You got to rock the Maximilian. That's all mm-hmm. I'm going to say. I don't care I about the rest you. anymore. I feel it's fair. As a Bennist, I support you, Max. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, uh, the the film itself is shot from October of 1941 to January of 1942. Uh, it goes $200,000 over budget. That's like, you know, inflation calculator, that's millions. Yeah, yeah. At the very least, maybe two million. Yeah, and shout out to Sven Mikulek over at Cinephilia Beyond, where we're pulling a lot of this information. So things were already kind of looking bad for the Magnificent Ambersons, and Noel had earlier mentioned that the test screenings were not super auspicious. How much do we know about that? Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position 
warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Mint Mobile. You know, Ben, I got to say, one of the best parts about spring cleaning is that post-clean clarity you get where you're like, man, how have I been living like this? What's wrong with me? <laughs> you're right, Noel. It's, it's kind of like when you find out you've been paying a fortune for wireless when Mint Mobile has phone plans for 15 bucks a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile and get unlimited talk, text, and data for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. That's mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Noel, do you remember your favorite car? Well, yeah, um, it was a uh, an Eddie Bauer edition Ford Explorer. Oh, that's and cool. I, yeah, I, I just remember it was my dad's. I, I was a hand me down car kind of kid. Dad would buy a new car, I'd get that car, and I just remember feeling so awesome being up above everybody, like I was mm. in Mad Max or something. You know. I had a lot of uh, land yachts that I loved. I had Pontiac, yeah. Bonnevilles. Right? Oh, I never had an El Camino. My dad had one. And that was, a, that was a real interesting use of our collective time, keeping that thing running. But I think these cars all kind of speak to us because they were such a fundamental part of our lives. Do you remember when I had that Monte Carlo? That's what I meant. I, meant, <laughs> I said El Camino and I met Monte Carlo. I miss it. So uh, the Monte Carlo was tough. I had a series of Monte Carlos and the last one, God bless it. I just, I, I had to learn a lot about car maintenance just to keep that guy running. Totally. But it, it still was like a, a perfect fit. It's almost like finding your true love. Uh, you know, like when you recently got a car a few years back now, Oh, man. And funny you should say that. That particular perfect fit was the Honda Fit, which I love dearly. But, Ben, it's getting a little long in the tooth. And while it's been incredibly reliable up to now, it's getting to that age where I might have to start looking for some parts here and there to keep it running. Mm -hmm. And that's where eBay Motors comes in. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, roof racks, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. So keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. 
something in the neighborhood of, I think, 72 negative to 53 positive cards, you know, I mean, it's basically like a focus group, you know, for a product or for, you know, whatever, uh, you fill out your little card, you know, your exit interview kind of. And, um, that's actually a lot more of a, of an even relatively even split than I would have expected. Like 72 to 53, uh, negative to positive doesn't indicate that it was an outright failure. It's just the kind of thing, like now, of course, we have like Rotten Tomatoes where you can truly see kind of where the split happens. And a lot of times there will be movies that I love that are just like divisive and they're like 50-50 sometimes, you know, really great reviews to negative reviews. And that was the case here. The people that liked it, that were positive, were pretty overwhelmingly positive. And the people that were, uh, you know, negative about it were absolutely just hated it, thought it was trash. It reminds me of a, there's a really good clip of folks in, I guess, LA walking out of some of the early screenings of David Lynch's Eraserhead, uh-huh. um, where someone's just like asking them what you thought. And people either thought it was brilliant and evocative and strange and just thrilling, or people just didn't get it and thought it was trash. Right. Yeah. You can't make a film for everybody, right? Mm. That's bad news for studios, but it is true. And, The issue was that the studio, the studio machine itself is not oriented toward creativity and art for art's sake. They're bottom line kind of people. And they exercise their legal rights to save their money. Back to that article we mentioned just a second ago, there are three big reasons why the studio took the magnificent Ambersons away from Orson Welles. First, he agreed that they would get the last say on the final cut. So he thought this was kind of like a gentleman's agreement. You know, he thought this was just an olive branch. He was being nice. He was convinced that he could stay in control all the way from post-production to the debut. But after shooting ended, he was asked to go to Brazil to make a documentary uh, for, uh, what what was it called? Uh, The Good Neighbor Policy of Uncle Sam during wartime. Mm -hmm. And he thought his buddy, Robert Wise, would come with him and that while he was in Brazil, they could still be working on the Magnificent Ambersons and editing. Unfortunately, that didn't happen. Wise had to stay in the U.S. and pretty soon, Orson Welles was sidelined. He lost all creative control of the film. The studio was terrified by those negative test screenings you mentioned. And they went to Robert Wise and they said, look, our boy is in Brazil. We need someone at the helm of this ship. You need to save us from this disaster. Right, but wasn't it like wasn't he intended to be there with him or something? Like he, he was, but, but then he couldn't because of the travel restrictions yes. around wartime. Yeah, so that that would have made it easier for for Wells to continue to exer- exert, you know, uh, supremacy over the process of the editing. Because I mean, like you know, typically. An editing process of a film, the director, you know, the maybe not the writer always, but if the writer and the director are the same person, they're going to be in the room with the editor. They're, it's part of it. Like, they're doing this kind of as a collaboration. Mm-hmm. And this separation of the two of them, you know, by literal, you know, thousands of miles, um, and not to mention a lack of, like— um, the immediacy of the kind of communication that we have today with things like Zoom and screen sharing and all of that, like working collaboratively is obviously a lot easier. 
supposedly there would be cables sent or wires sent by Wells with just pages and pages and pages of editing suggestions. But it was a whole lot easier for them to kind of ignore them. Right. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry, bud. Uh, sorry, heavy O. We got. Oh, you're breaking up there, buddy. Yeah. Oh, oh, <laughs> I can't. I can't hear. Yeah. This. Uh, this is crazy because the studio ends up cutting forty minutes from the film, and they put in a pretty blasé happy ending, just to just to put a bow on it and to help the audience walk away satisfied. The problem is the ending does not fit the rest of the film. It's as right. if the uh, it's as if the sci-fi film Dark City. You guys remember that one? Of course. I love Dark City. It's as if Dark City all of a sudden ended as a buddy comedy. Well, speaking of Brazil, it reminds me of the incredible Terry Gilliam film, Brazil, mm -hmm. that has a director's cut ending that is mega bleak Way and, and effed up. And the one that was the studio insisted on for the theatrical version is completely different. And, you know, I mean, um, Gilliam has a history of clashing with with um, studios in a very right. similar way, you know, where his is like movies are re-edited. And, you know, for example, he was also trying to make like Don Quixote for, you know, who else was trying to make Don Quixote for years? Orson Welles. So, <laughs> right. You know, Orson Welles kind of eventually, we'll get to this, but he ends up getting a reputation for being like someone that can't really see things through. Mm -hmm. He's he, he can't really let go of projects. But he does finish this one. And even with the meddling and all the stuff that we're talking about, the movie makes a decent amount of money on its opening and does get nominated for quite a few Academy Awards. Yeah. And I guess this is the time, I, maybe I'm wrong, right? When did Wizard of Oz come out? That was like in the 30s, right? Yeah, so this is the time where I guess it was sort of like dealer's choice as to whether your movie was going to be in color or black and white because yeah. this was nominated for Best Black and White Cinematography. And I guess I never really thought about that. Or, or sorry, Best, yes, both. Best Black and White Cinematography and Best Black and White Art Direction. Right. Um, so this would have been a time where I guess it was up to the kind of creatives and probably the studio as to whether you did your film in color. Well, obviously, cost would be part of it too right. because to develop color film would be more expensive but wizard of oz is 1939 yeah august 25th 1939 except for in green bay of all places where it came Ooh. out on august 10th they know what they did anyway <laughs> so the, uh, so this thing also doesn't vibe with the zeitgeist of the u.s at the time in the war years this is not upbeat it's not very, hey, we can do it working together. You know, it, it, it thematically clashes. So the studio exerts their influence and releases it pretty quietly as a, um, a double billing. The, the other film that gets released with the Magnificent Ambersons is a comedy called Mexican Spitfire Sees a Ghost. I just think that's the most like procedurally titled thing ever. It just sounds like stock character description of a thing that happens. You know what I mean? Like, it's like the new film from Liam Neeson. Liam Neeson gets into a fight, gets angry, and and, and it's screams very about Chat his daughter. GPT like. like it actually, very much like is. Chat GPT probably looks at that and is like, "Wow, that's corny." Mexican Spitfire sees a ghost. I really want to see this. And I also do want to say, I want to point out, yeah. I don't think any of the three of us have seen The Magnificent Ambersons. Um, you know, we're talking about lost media. We'll get to which part of this is actually lost 
you can see this. There are ways to see it. I'm not quite sure if it's in its original form or if it's like in, you know, some sort of like, you know, kind of compromised version. We'll get to that. But right. um, again, it does okay. It gets nominated. I don't believe it won any of those awards. No, it's an honor to be nominated, though. It is. <laughs> so uh, we also want to shout out an uh, excellent article that Dr. Z found by Molly Haskell over on Criterion. And they have some great writing on Criterion.com. This is The Magnificent Ambersons, What Is and What Might Have Been. Okay. All right. So... The Magnificent Ambersons doesn't work out the way that everybody wanted it to. They need a scapegoat because that's how studios work. So Robert Wise kind of becomes the fall guy, even though he was super great at editing Citizen Kane. Overnight, people turned against him and they said, we know Orson Welles is the business, and this Robbie Wise guy, <laughs> Robbie Wise guy, nice, uh, this guy has ruined a brilliant creative endeavor. And a, a lot of folks will also argue that Wells was betrayed by the people he trusted, but if we're, we're being objective, you know, ultimately the audience is the arbiter of what they do or don't enjoy. And we'll we'll never know, right, uh, what Orson Welles' final vision for the Magnificent Ambersons would have been because we weren't old enough to be in the test screenings. Also to point out, Mexican Spitfire turned out to be a series of eight movies. So it was just kind of like, they were like hour plus movies, comedies that they would just kind of spit out. Mexican Spitfire sees a mongoose. Mexican Spitfire in space. Yes, we got the girl from Mexico, Mexican Spitfire, Mexican Spitfire out west, the Mexican Spitfire's baby, uh, Mexican Spitfire at sea, Mexican Spitfire sees a ghost, Mexican Spitfire's elephant, and Mexican Spitfire's blessed event. And these were all, all these came out between 1939 and 1943. This is amazing. I want to see some of these. It really does remind me You can me buy of, the entire uh, collection for $13. Oh, I'm on it. It reminds me of like, you know, what they did with the Leprechaun movies. You know, That's they exactly obviously were it. highly, highly in inspired by Mexican Spitfire. Of course, you know, and if you look at the Criterion collection of the Leprechaun franchise, you can see that they're pretty upfront about that. Mexican mm. Spitfire, amazing American cinema. It's up there with the Police Academy series and, of course, Vibes. But there is, you know, there is a Criterion release of the Magnificent Ambersons, yes. but it's it's mis it's conspicuously missing some footage. We're not talking about an entire film that was lost history. We're talking about a portion of the director's original uh, vision, um, and and then we're going to get into what happened. And also, there's a couple of different versions of the story because one version sort of leans on like studio malice, like the studio was angry at Orson Welles, so they did him dirty and and destroyed his beautiful masterpiece. Uh, the other version probably a little closer to the truth. It was just sort of a procedural thing studios would do when they were done with footage, outtakes. They actually, you know, there was a lot of silver in, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the celluloid. That's why they call it the silver screen. Um, they would, you know, sell the footage and, and reclaim the silver. And the ending of the Ambersons that you mentioned there, Noel, that physical media was sold for silver, along with all the other unused RKO footage. Their system was to sell leftover film 
after a movie had been out for six months. So it was just another income stream for them. And we know that Wells had his own print of the film on 35 millimeter. He gave it away to someone in while he was in Brazil. So right now, as far as cinephiles and historians know, there are no copies of the original 132-minute cut. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Noel, do you remember your favorite car? Well, yeah, um, it was a uh, an Eddie Bauer edition Ford Explorer. Oh, that's and cool. I, yeah, I, I just remember it was my dad's. I, I was a hand me down car kind of kid. Dad would buy a new car, I'd get that car, and I just remember feeling so awesome being up above everybody, like I was mm. in Mad Max or something. You know, I had a lot of uh, land yachts that I loved. I had Pontiac Bonneville. Yeah. Right. Oh, I never had an El Camino. My dad had one. And that was a, that was a real interesting use of our collective time, keeping that thing running. But I think these cars all kind of speak to us because they were such a fundamental part of our lives. Do you remember when I had that Monte Carlo? That's what I meant. I, meant, I said El Camino <laughs> and I met Monte Carlo. I miss it. So uh, the Monte Carlo was tough. I had a series of Monte Carlos and the last one, God bless it. I just, I, I had to learn a lot about car maintenance just to keep that guy running. Totally. It, it still was like a, a perfect fit. It's almost like finding your true love. Uh, you know, like when you recently got a car a few years back now, Oh, man. And funny you should say that. That particular perfect fit was the Honda Fit, which I love dearly. But, Ben, it's getting a little long in the tooth. And while it's been incredibly reliable up to now, it's getting to that age where I might have to start looking for some parts here and there to keep it running. Mm -hmm. And that's where eBay Motors comes in. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, roof racks, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. So keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, Noel, have you ever wanted to wake up to something better? Oh, boy, have I ever been. <laughs> well, uh, this is where Avalon Waterways comes in. How does waking up to a medieval castle, an ancient cathedral, a rolling vineyard, or a charming cobblestone village sound to you? Well, here on Ridiculous History, that's right up our street, Ben, our charming cobblestone street. So I can say it sounds pretty good to me. 
You're absolutely right, Noel. Avalon Waterways has redefined cruising in so many different ways. They've got the uh, widest opening windows. They've got beds that face the passing scenery. So wherever you go, you have a front row seat to the views of the world. And not only do you wake up in the best staterooms in the entirety of the business, but you're waking up in a new port every day, right in the heart of these amazing historic cities. Ah, Ben, sign me up. Open your eyes to a better view and a different kind of cruising. One with smaller ships, bigger experiences, fewer people, and more of everything. Limited time special offers await at avalonwaterways.com. But there's a bit of a conspiracy, there's a bit of speculation that somewhere out there in the hinterlands of Brazil, there's one copy and there's like one guy who somehow hasn't sold it for silver. Which isn't too far out of of, of precedence. You know? Like, I believe it was uh, Fritz Lang's uh, Metropolis that was found in some obscure museum in South America, like the original print of that. So, I mean, these things have been known to happen, you know. But again, this is where we're talking about the version that has the kind of more dire ending um, that, 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 you know, was in, in keeping with Wells' vision as opposed to the recut and reshot, you know, ending that the studio insisted upon to kind of more appease the, the general audiences who maybe would not have gone for the, the dour kind of ending. Absolutely. And people were speculating about this for quite a long time. How can we find this original cut of this film? The search continued, the speculation continued until a guy named Robert Carringer hits the scene. He has reconstructed the Amberson. This is cool. Yeah, he releases this on Criterion Laserdisc in 1986. And the package, when you buy it, includes the script with the writing out of the ending, you can see some of the deleted scenes, uh, courtesy of included storyboards. And then you can also, they, they did something really cool. They include fragments of that earlier film that inspired Orson Welles. Uh, it's not the whole thing, but you can see snippets of the silent version of Pampered Youth. Hmm. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Uh, he was using the, um, I guess you call it like a continuity script, or um, maybe it's just a really detailed shooting script, you know, that has uh, descriptions of every shot, every frame. A truly good screenwriter will literally describe what you are seeing in the end product. If you've never had a chance to like read uh, a script for a film that you've enjoyed, it's worth it. Like a really good example is um, you can find this online. If anyone's seen uh, the film Uncut Gems, there's an excellent sequence at the end. I don't give anything away, but that involves like sort of this like spacey kind of like, you know, journey through uh, a bullet hole into like, you know, this crazy starry night sky thing. And it's described verbatim, word for word, exactly what you see. And it's really cool because that's another example of the Softy brothers wrote the script and they're also the director. So they're thinking about all of this. So a truly expertly written screenplay is going to have all this. And that's what Carringer used in The Magnificent Ambersons, a reconstruction. And so he's able to use that detail to reconstruct it with, I guess, Ben, you maybe described it off mic when we were talking about that as sort of like a video moving thumbnail. thumbnails. Yeah, kind of, a yeah. moving thumbnail, right? Mm -hmm. it, gives you, it gives you the gist. Still, people don't think, and this is not to denigrate Carringer's excellent work, people don't think 
this is the final cut as Orson Welles envisioned it because he was still continually sending those editing notes and cuts from Brazil, right? So we don't know how far along he got. Uh, we just know that Carringer, as of today, has the most comprehensive understanding of what the Magnificent Ambersons could have been. And Carringer also has some opinions on those multiple versions of the story that we mentioned earlier. Carringer's book argues that Wells participated in this drastic re-editing of the Ambersons and proposes that Orson Welles had ordered even more drastic cuts than the studio. That's right. Um, and that, you know, again, kind of goes to what we were talking about earlier is how maybe Wells wanted to spin it as the studio was sort of taking away his agency and, the, you know, stealing his movie from him. But ultimately, I think he was just as in the weeds with like, you know, edits and stuff as they were, though, granted, maybe his edits were like more for artistic reasons uh, than theirs, which were probably more for like general audience kind of viewership reasons. So he apparently, you know, we're talking about those cables that he was sending from Rio some of them were like in the 35 page range of cables, just like absolutely jam packed with these editing notes. And then there's another controversial charge from Carringer. He seems to imply that Orson Welles sabotaged the film before it ever had an audience due to something called the big cut. He proposed some drastic cuts before previews even took place. If these cuts ordered by Wells were implemented in the print that the audience saw, then Carringer says it could explain why the picture performed so badly. Uh, but he also says, if this is true, then we need to completely reassess our understanding of the entire history of the film. But if you go back to Robert Wise, he says, I don't remember any big cut being made. I think what those folks saw at that first preview was exactly what Orson had greenlit. And so we see that there's a lot of differing opinions. A lot of people took this personally, but regardless of what the ultimate truth is, we know that Wells himself was thoroughly shaken by the experience of making this film and working with the studio, and he was haunted by for the rest of his life wondering what could have been. Yeah, and it makes sense because he kind of didn't really work in the typical Hollywood system at all after this. And like, he, you know, RKO Pictures severed ties with him. Um, he, this was kind of seen as the beginnings of his reputation, you know, that would kind of follow him for the rest of his life as this sort of like neurotic auteur who maybe couldn't always finish what he started like I was talking about um, you know he did make some other films like Touch of Evil uh, which is I haven't seen I've, I've heard it's, I've heard it's good though um, one of his, his later in life projects that I think probably if you guys haven't seen it I, I know you'd love it it's called F is for Fake it's a documentary kind of about like uh, illusionists and art forgery. And it, he himself 
stars in it as this sort of unreliable narrator. And there's a fabulous Criterion release of F is for Fake. Um, I highly recommend anybody that wants to get a sense of like what Orson's deal was. You can see that because it really shows his fascination with illusion, his fascination with like being able to kind of like trick people. And like cinema is trickery at the end of the day. Like you're being lied to, but you're being lied to with your own permission given. You know, like I want you to take me on a ride. That's literally signing up to be lied to. I mean, it's a weird way of when, putting it. Well, it's valid. When I, I've always thought that when someone is lying and when both people in the conversation know that someone is lying, then what happens often is pretty close to the truth, right? You, that's when you are aware of the deceit. Uh, speaking of pretentious quotes and philosophies, Here's what Wells had to say when he was asked about RKO and the Ambersons. He says, they destroyed Ambersons and the picture itself destroyed me. It's a little melodramatic, sure, uh, but the film did lose money. It lost $625,000 and, and it just added to earlier controversy and problems RKO had. You know, Citizen Kane is somewhat inspired by a guy named William Randolph Hearst in a way that William Randolph Hearst was very not happy about. And so he was beefed up with the RKO studio already. And again, because of this, Hollywood started to resent Orson Welles. The golden child was less and less golden Eventually, RKO severs their relationship with Wells as a result of the Ambersons. And like you said, he never works in the mainstream movie industry again. He would go on to make a lot of other cool films. But if you look at his career, this was the deciding factor here. And it, it set Wells on the path to becoming the character he is known as in American society today. The guy on the Paul Masson wine commercials, the fish sticks and frozen peas we're talking about. He became sort of a, a caricature. That's right. It's interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, this is the last kind of guy who you would ever think would resort to doing fish stick commercials. I mean, it's just like he obviously he had to eat I'm, you know, and he seemed to enjoy doing so. Uh, that's too high. I can relate. Um, but he, it, it seems like an, another kind of like, you know, fall from grace, you know, um, like to have to resort to that. Maybe he didn't care. Maybe he just wanted to be comfortable and hold court. And, you know, uh, you know, there, there's actually a, a really interesting quote here from a, a director named Henry Jaglon, who is actually one of uh, Wells's, you know, closest personal friends in those days. And he, he, he says, referring to Ambersons, he said to me repeatedly that anything bad that happened to him in the next 30, 40 years derived from Ambersons. And I mean, guy, you say that all the time. I do say that. Um, but Henry Jaglum is a really interesting director in his own right. Mm -hmm. And his daughter, Sabrina, is someone that I work with. I've worked with on a couple of uh, podcasts. She's been a showrunner for a show called uh, Wheel Woman um, about, like, this incredible story of um, a, a real-life, you know, getaway driver for the mob who used to be a um, Kodak girl, like, in the 60s. And it's her incredible story. Uh, and also a show that we're working on right now. But uh, Sabrina t mentioned to me once that her 
her father kind of like hung out with um, with Orson Welles cool. a lot in his latter days. And this is then I saw this come up in some of the research, and I was like, that's freaking cool. Also, while we're talking about other podcasts, if you want to learn more about that Seth Rogen film and the uh, pandemonium that follow geopolitically, check out our Stuff They Don't Want You to Know episode on that from a few years ago. It gets really weird. There's hacking involved. There's speculation about biodiversity, the DMZ. It's It's got everything. But for now... The so- there, there was a big leak, right? It was Sony, it was yes. a thing. Or there was, mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember... Right around the same time, yeah. And so, Super interesting. Uh, yeah, it's when Sony got hacked. Yes, That's right. it's when Sony got hacked. So do check that out. Uh, we can't wait to dive into more obscure, ridiculous film history. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Big, big thanks to Max Kubrick Williams. Uh, big, big thanks to our own William Randolph Hearst, Jonathan Strickland, aka The Quister, and Noel. Big, big thanks to you, man. I'm really excited about the Ridiculous History Cinematic Universe. Ben Thompson from Badass of the Week. I just re-listened to that episode. Uh, he vibes with us. Oh, yeah. I that love good... that action montage. And Max, just, you know, I, I know I'm love-bombing you a little, but you did such a great job on that montage, oh, dude. Thanks, Daffodil. <laughs> it's very fun. And speaking of vibes, you can also check out a recent episode of our sister podcast that Ben and I do with our buddy Matt Frederick about vibes, not the uh, the genius um, 1980s film. I got a bit. Thank so, you, Noel. Uh, Thank but you. just about the concept of like, what is intuition? You know, can we read body language? Can we perceive these things? Is it some form of precognition or is it just survival instinct? Check out the stuff that I want you to know episode on vibes. And while you're checking out all these things, we have a couple of just very, very light spoilers for you. Tune in when we explore the stories of pirates having a government. Tune in as we get further into the weeds of etymology and, of course, the food history. I can't wait. We'll see you next time, folks. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Avalon Waterways. Ben, are you in major need of a vacation right now? Noel, you're a mind reader. I am, and uh, aren't we all? We are. While cruising remains popular, there's something big happening in the industry, and that is, my friend, smaller ships. True story. The intimate ships of Avalon Waterways can go where the big ships can only dream through winding passageways of rolling vineyards and castled hills into the heart of timeless cities and storybook villages. That sounds like a delight. See how Avalon's smaller ships promise greater discoveries, fewer people, and more of everything. Limited time. Special offers await at AvalonWaterways.com. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply. 
acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.